Welcome to the Marion Consort podcast. I'm Rory McCleary, Artistic Director of the Marion Consort. As part of our exploration of the music of early Baroque German composer Heinrich Schütz, I recently spoke to Dr. Liesel Dawson about the historical, social and cultural context for Schütz's astonishing musicalisches Exequium, as well as the Orbis Sensualium Pictus, the first children's picture book, which was published around the time that Schütz was composing, and extracts of which are interspersed throughout our film of Schütz's work. So one of the things that we really wanted to do with the Schütz, and particularly with the Musikalisches Exequien, was to try and use it to spark some conversations and some thinking about how we relate to and deal with death and grief. Because it's something that, certainly to our modern sensibilities, we find a little bit distasteful or difficult at least to talk about. And so we wanted to reflect on that, not in a morbid way, but just to kind of find ways of processing, especially at a time when we've all had to face that reality a little bit more in the last year. Um, so I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Liesel Dawson, um, for whom this is absolutely her area of special special interest and expertise, um, to talk to us a little bit about that today. Um, Dr. Dawson is uh, a lecturer at the University of Bristol um, and has written on a huge range of topics um, around early modern psychology, gender, uh, English literature, the ideas around and behind grief, loss and mourning in literature, um, and a whole host of other things, including, and this is completely off topic, but cruentation, which I'd never heard of before, which is fascinating. So maybe we can get onto that a little bit later on. But so thank you so much for, uh, for joining me today. It's absolutely delightful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So one of the things that'd be, be great to talk about to begin with is... For our film, we juxtaposed Schütz's German Requiem with texts from the Orbis Sensualium Pictus, which is really kind of the first children's picture book, and which we thought gave a kind of a little bit of an insight into how people viewed the world at the time that Schütz was writing this music during the Thirty Years' War in Germany. And it's striking to me because of the, this juxtaposition between the very banal um, and things that we would expect for a children's primer, animal noises, counting, all those basics, and then really things about theology, really quite in-depth theological concepts, and also really a very stark and honest view of the world, um, talking about death, very frankly, the process of death, the ritual of death, but also talking about deformed and monstrous people, juxtaposing that with how to dress your garden, detailing the tormenting of malefactors alongside how commerce and business work. So it's all addressed in this very kind of matter of fact way. Is that really how they would have viewed the world at this time? Well, if we can sort of take one step backwards, I think the first thing I would want to say is that this period is a period where there's a huge amount of change in the way in which they're thinking about education. So if we think about late medieval education, it's very technical and vocational. It's basically the clergy and the elite or perhaps people who have specific occupations like lawyers or tradesmen, but a tiny part of the population. With the early modern period, you have a few things. You have Renaissance humanism. So you have this new emphasis on the study of ancient languages, Latin and Greek, and also classical works. So there's an idea that a Christian and classical education will create a more moral kind of elite culture. But you also have the Protestant Reformation. 
And of course, here with Martin Luther, we get this emphasis on reading the Bible. So education suddenly becomes much more vital to the salvation of the people. So there's a real educational drive that develops. And finally, added to that, we get the printing press. So that also kind of adds to this breakthrough in the spread of literacy. So I think we can look at this work as sort of in this new educational context. Um, just to say, it is an absolutely beautiful book. It has these wonderful sort of woodcut images, little numbers by the pictures, and then these short sentences beneath. And you can see how much fun it would be actually to try to learn a new language looking at this wonderful picture book. As you say, it has a lot to it. It has things about the natural world. It has pictures of birds, parts of the body, bones. Um, it has categories, animals that live by water as well as land. So you almost kind of learn what those animals are. And then we have things about Christianity, you know, a picture about God, about Adam and Eve, and allegorical figures like prudence and patience. And then, as you say, it has um, odd things. But also, I should say, it has wonderful um, images of professions, which I really love. You know, fishing, hunting. In the barber shop, we learn that the barber cuts hair, but he also opens up a vein. So there's a, there's a there's an amazing sort of snapshot to 17th century life and language presented here, which is really remarkable. Yeah, that's certainly what struck me is that it seems so kind of comprehensive. It provides this almost kind of complete worldview uh, from the very kind of quotidian of the everyday all the way to kind of, you know, moral philosophy and um, and these other kind of more abstract concepts. Um, so that's really interesting to hear the, the, the context of that. But sorry, and I, I think, interrupted. And I think the pictures are actually really helpful. If you think that you are in France and you suddenly walk into the patisserie, if you had a picture of that with numbers and pictures, you know, it's actually quite, a, it seems like quite an intuitive way of learning. But as you say, it has odd things. It has uh, what we would call physical abnormalities, the deformed and monstrous people. It's got the tormenting of malefactors where it tells you, you know, that the guilty are taken from prison, dragged by a horse to the place of ex execution and the different kinds of execution or death that people would have, you know, witches are burnt. My own sense is that it, this book is really trying to give the learner everything, you know, he, it's mostly he, but maybe occasionally she, she needs, although actually Luther talks about writing for, you know, mothers as well as children, when they go out into the world and it, it, in their own sort of Christian lives. And of course, they're living in a world, you know, where death is much more common, but also where executions are common. So, you know, children may have been taken to executions as part of a kind of moral lesson, and the, the, the book gives them very kind of factual information of what it is they're seeing and what the words are to describe it. So it's unusual, um, but maybe less unusual given the world that they live in. And again, when we think about things like Grimm's fairy tales, which are very violent, or the kind of classical texts you might have learned at school, you know, Ovid, you know, again, very violent texts sometimes. I think they have a different sense about what children are interested in 
and also what they're kind of capable of of learning or listening to. And absolutely, and, and and I guess also perhaps a product of the fact that, as you say, their world was rather more kind of you know death was rather more ubiquitous, and it was something they had to deal with rather more frequently. One of the things we did for our other Schutz program is to contextualize uh, the pieces with readings from Hans Herberler's Zeitregister, so this cobbler who kind of um, wrote up a diary and then later um, transcribed it in, in long form about his experiences of the Thirty Years' War, and it makes incredibly grim reading. Uh, you know, the, the number of children uh, and other relatives that die over the course of his journal um, and his experiences with all the various armies invading, stealing food, killing people for the slightest of infractions or sometimes for no reason at all, um, all sorts of other terrible things that happen. It, it, it gives you this real sense that this was something that they sort of, I guess, yeah, as you say, they needed to know about because it was going on all around them. But it, I, 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 I love that as well, that it is, it's it's hard to convey in a, in a video um, or in a podcast, indeed, but it's such a beautiful object and you can view it digitally, um, various editions of the Orbis Sensorium Pictures. And as you say, the illustrations, the, the, um, the woodcuts are so detailed um, and so kind of rich that you can really kind of see as well as as, as read about about the life that people were living at the time. Um, and I guess it's, it speaks to that, that it was reprinted a lot, wasn't it? It was reprinted basically until the end of the 18th century. Yeah, and I think and I think the way you use um, the three pages within the music are really interesting because you start with the one about the burial, which again gives a very factual description of what happens after death, which sort of fits into a you know memento mori tradition of focusing on death. You move to God, and then the final um, woodcut or page that you use is the close which is the final page of the book, which, you know, tells you to fear God, but also to go now and read other godly books, you know, so that you'll become learned, wise and godly. And again, this is a very kind of Lutheran, Protestant tenant. So it fits into that wider way that, you know, the funeral acts as a form of, you know, preaching and, you know, instruction. So I thought it, it worked really well. I, I think what you say about death is incredibly important. And I think, you know, people have to try to imagine this other world where death is at the forefront of people's minds and it's ever present. So, you know, as you say, people are dying all the time. There's a, there's a, a much shorter life expectancy about half the children would die before the age of 10. Women died frequently in childbirth. So the kind of second marriage after death is common in the way that divorce and remarriage is for us, or even more common. And then added to that, you've got plagues, epidemics, the 30 years war, as you mentioned, which is incredibly brutal and extended. And I think this really changes the way that death is in people's life. It is, a, it is a common presence. It's something you see many times. When someone dies who you love, you're still very sad, but you're part of a community of people who have experienced death. And of course, the Christian tradition encourages you to think about death, to remain focused on death as a form of spir spiritual preparation. You know, this life is just a rehearsal for the afterlife. We mentioned the, the, the memento mori tradition, 
you know, which are these, you know, it goes back to the medieval period, these objects, the skull um, that you look at that remind you of your mortality to ensure you're living a virtuous life. And there's a real focus on the ars moriendi, the kind of art of dying or dying well, which is about trying to have this good death. So death is really important and it's a real focus. Well, I, th I think all of that brings us very neatly to um, the specific case of um, Heinrich Posthumus. Um, who, I mean, sort of, you know, couldn't be better named for a discussion about reflections on death. But of course, he's, he's called that because actually his father died before he was born, about two or three months before he was born himself. Um, but the history of Schutz's Musicalisches Exequien is an interesting one, certainly, and a striking one for us, I think, because we, and certainly I, find it hard to relate to that idea that he was planning, uh, Heinrich uh, was planning his funeral um, for a long, long time before his, his eventual death um, in extraordinary detail, including commissioning this incredible copper coffin, this in, in, incredibly beautiful object, um, which was um, painted and decorated and then inlaid with all of these texts, these psalm quotations and biblical quotations, um, and chorale text that he had chosen. Um, and he then commissions Heinrich Schütz to, um, or in fact, he doesn't, um, but his estate does, his his widow and his children, commission Heinrich Schütz to write this piece using those texts as part of his burial service. And these texts would also, as well as being on the coffin, would have formed part of, of the sermon for, for his funeral. But of course, he also, um, Heinrich uh, Royce, is an, a reflection of that kind of drive towards education because he himself is a very cultured man, very learned, um, great patron and practitioner of of the arts as well. How typical is that then? That some because we would consider it perhaps a little bit morbid to be so focused and so kind of focused on the detail of one of one's own funeral and um, and the kind of the ceremony of it. But how common was that? So it's really common um, for Lutherans to select the biblical verses as the kind of themes for the sermons, to choose specific music, or to commission occasional works for the choir to sing so it is really I mean maybe he is a kind of extreme case in terms of the level of detail and I think I remember reading that the coffin he had commissioned a year before but he only kind of reveals it two days before he dies so yes, it was a secret of, yeah exactly <laughs> it's a kind of surprise as part of his his end um, and at Protestant funerals you would hear the story of the person's life and the dying person would, would often contribute to this part of the funeral, kind of giving this information. And we know that some women even made their own shrouds. So I, you can think about the spiritual preparation for death and the planning for death and the planning for the funeral sort of fits into this spiritual preparation. And um, the scholar Rudolf Henning, I think, makes the really interesting point that because in the 17th century, the Lutheran custom was to put the body right beneath the pulpit, that when the funeral sermon is delivered, you know, especially if it's slightly authored by the dead person, it's almost as if the dead person is preaching this very powerful and moving sermon. So it kind of gives it this extra kind of emotional force. And if you want an example of a kind of English version of this, did you want to come in and then I'll 
I was just going to say, on that very note, I, I, I read something which I found very striking, which we would probably think of as a bit distasteful, but that in some cases, the kind of the rhetorical art of these funeral sermons often involved some degree of imitation of the deceased um, in terms of kind of the, the way that uh, they were delivered, the delivery and the speech and the rhetoric of that. And we would find that bizarre, essentially doing an impression of somebody who's just died at their own funeral. But I guess that ties into what you said, that actually you're kind of embodying them through this as well you know and celebrating their life through through this funeral oration yeah absolutely and again the power of the message being delivered if it's being delivered by the dead person you know you can see how that works this fits in nicely to the other example i want to give um which is the poet and cleric john dunn who of course is now known mostly for his metaphysical poetry but at the time he was also known for his amazing sermons and during his last illness he preached what is kind of like his own funeral sermon six weeks before he died, before Charles I. And in this period, he also posed for his own funeral monument. So he stood, he put on his burial shroud and he stood on a wooden urn and an artist drew a life-size image of him on wooden boards. And he had this at the foot of his bed when he was dying. So it's an image that prepares him for death, but also gives him hope of the resurrection. So the image he had was less the decaying body and more because he's on the urn of the moment the body is recompacted with the soul at resurrection. So it's a kind of image of death and an image of resurrection. And then this is used to make the marble monument that's erected in St. Paul's. And it also serves as the model for the image on the frontispiece of that sermon he gave, Death's Duel. So he has his face in the shroud and the sermon he gives then is published. So again, you see there, you know, almost an enactment of the person who's dying, kind of giving their own funeral oration and kind of, and, and you can really see here that death is not just something that happens to you. It's a performance. It's something you do. You're active in it. And also it's part of, you know, your exhibiting your Christianity and your faith in God. It's fascinating. And I guess that that is probably what is in some ways most alien to us is that that degree of kind of the, the performative. If people haven't seen the, the John Donne statue, the sculpture, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, it's an extraordinary work of art. So I'd recommend at least looking it up on Google and to, to see a picture of it. But it's, it's an extraordinary thing. I suppose that, that brings us on then to the to the Schutzexequien, which of course is very much performative because music really only exists in the act of performance. It's really interesting that although Heinrich Schütz wrote the music, it really is, a, we can say, I think, fairly a collaborative work between Heinrich Schütz and Prince Heinrich Royce because he chose the text and seems to have had some degree of influence because the two men knew each other. They had an existing relationship and seemed to get on quite well. And Prince Heinrich had commissioned Schütz a few times to write pieces. Um, there seems to be some degree to which the prince had given some indication of the way in which the text should be laid out, the format, because Schutz has given credit for writing this piece, which is essentially the first kind of German language requiem, um, and uh, collates all of these texts together to form a kind of mass, really, a curie and then a gloria. So the first movement, um, the concerto in the form of a burial mass, as Schutz describes it in the introduction to the printed publication version, is really a curie and then and then a gloria, but with these these German texts and a very specific ordering of them, which probably the prince had some hand in deciding. 
But it's an extraordinary piece as well, and I think is quite rightly celebrated in Schutz's oeuvre because it's really his only extended funeral work. He wrote specific smaller funeral pieces, often resetting some of these chorale texts um, in other contexts. But it's his only extended work, and it's amazing the way that he uses the forces at his disposition um, and the different musical forms, combining them, and, as you say, making it really performative um, in a very dramatic sense, really, um, things like the third movement where he has two separate groups and he gives specific instructions again in, in the appendix to the, the, the printed publication that the two groups should be spatially separated and that the small group, the trio of singers represents the Beata Anima, the kind of the blessed soul on its journey to the afterlife, which is extraordinary to think that that degree of care was taken around the philosophy of the text and the way that it should be depicted in a funeral service. Um, I find that amazing. But in, in the context of kind of how people were thinking about grieving and memorialising and the, as you say, the kind of the act of performance in burials and in, and in funerals, is that common or is that something a little bit more exceptional? We probably think of it as exceptional, but I expect the answer is it's a bit more common. <laughs> Well, I think the mu- I, I don't know that this level of detail exists. I mean, I think you would know more than I would. I think what you say about the kind of spatial organization does seem amazing. And I, it's Gregory Johnson who argues that, you know, the ones that are, that are near the coffin are articulating a kind of longing for God. And this smaller group is a more kind of joyful voice about the resurrection. So it's kind of performing this i don't know dialogue between you know and a kind of movement toward hope and consolation so i i don't know if if anything this detailed in terms of the music exists but it is remarkable and and as you say the way it ties back in to the coffin and the way the verses how everything kind of comes together you know the, the the verses on the coffin are used in the music and, you know, everything's kind of planned beautifully. I mean, a big difference, of course, is the fact it's in the vernacular. So, you know, you do have these, you know, big shifts because of the move to Protestantism and Lutherism. But, you know, you would have had the kind of mass, which would have been Latin. So here we get, you know, a vernacular version, which, which is, you would imagine is much more powerful. I, th- I think that's it, and it's, for me, it's really interesting because th- that difference between settings of the of the requiem mass, which are definitely performative, and you can hear that in the kind of the plangency of the music and 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 the way that the music is written, um, and the, the you know the particular sounds and colours that composers use, particularly Iberian composers in the kind of late sixteenth and early seventeenth centuries. But it's much less specific, and of course, as you say, because this is very much a you know a Lutheran piece, it's in the vernacular, and so people are meant to listen and really understand. And what Schutz does is he combines that element with this wonderful new dramatic style. He went to, to Italy and learnt with um, some Italian composers, including Claudio Monteverdi. And so this new kind of more solistic style, you have these duets and these trios and these solos interspersed amongst the kind of the more choral movements, which speak very, very directly because they are the biblical text. They, the, the, the tutti moments in the first movement are the chorales. And then you have these incredibly direct smaller forces movements talking about things like Das Blut Christi, you know, the blood of Christ is my salvation. And, and it's incredibly emotive music. It's very dramatic, much more so than a requiem is kind of is emotive, but in a more kind of general sense. It's meant to evoke a kind of the general sense of mourning 
and perhaps some reflection on the Dies Irae, you know, the Day of Judgment, and then, the, the, you know, in Paradisum, the peace and that the soul goes up to heaven. But here it's incredibly specific and theologically specific as well, and Schutz really ties the, the music in there. But one, one thing I find incredible about Schutz's music in particular, but all of the writing really at this period, is given the ubiquity of death um, and the fact that it is so, so commonplace um, and often so very grisly, um, is that this incredible belief and this hope which shines through, and particularly in the, the exact thing, because you would think um, that a requiem would be very gloomy. And a lot of, actually, a lot of kind of Renaissance requiems are quite gloomy. There are moments of hope, of course, but they are, you know, quite generally quite gloomy. But there's this incredible sense of, you know, the victory over death, the celebration of life in the hereafter, um, like the end of the third movement, you know, Unsum Preis deines Volks Israel. So, you know, celebrating God as the um, the hope and the prize of, of Israel. And so you get the Yamatal, the kind of veil of tears, which is obviously kind of, you know, our current life, but then this thing that comes after, which if we hope in God, you know, everything's going to be okay, which I, I find striking that that kind of strength of faith persists in the face of all, all this really kind of, you know, the 30 years war, these terrible atrocities being committed, the huge death tolls. Um, and as you say, the kind of the absolute everyday nature of death that you're constantly surrounded by in a way we can't really, really understand. I also wonder, going back to the performative element, if the music and the art is what's helping you to have the faith, you know, that actually we know that a lot of people had a lot of anxiety about the afterlife, you know, where were they going to go? And of course, in Catholicism, good things that you do, good works and the indulgences can help you get into heaven. So even after death, you know, your relatives can help you through prayers, you know, the mass itself, the last rites. For, for Martin Luther, there's no purgatory. There's no in-between state. You get to your death and, you know, you're going one way or the other. You have a sleep. But I think that, you know, what, what's important there is about faith, and the belief in God's grace. And actually that, that the music, this amazingly moving music might be also what helps you to have that faith. So, you know, someone you love has died, you're having, you know, you know you're, you're in deep mourning, but actually the music lifts you. And again, you can see how done with the drawing is trying not just to perform his faith, but to, to instill it into himself. So it's sort of active. It's not just a reflection. It's possibly helping them to have it. That's amazing and kind of part of the process. And it, it strikes me that people often turn to music in that way nowadays, but in a, in a funny way that's kind of, well, not obviously funny in any sense, really, but um, striking in that it's divorced from that kind of sense of the religious often. It's, a, it's you know, it's, it's that they come to it on kind of purely um, sort of sensory terms, really. But that they seek that same kind of sense of solace fr from um, music and sometimes from this kind of music, um, you know, as well as, of course, the, the Bach passions and the fact that they are able to reach us on that level, even without the kind of the sort of more philosophical um, or moral or religious understanding of the context, I think is, you know, really speaks to the power of the music. But I think it's very interesting, the kind of the parallels there that the music can perform that service for us, even without a religious faith. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so one thing I did, I did want to ask about as well um, is really, um, and this is a huge topic, uh, so apologies in advance, but is 
of course, we know that attitudes to, to death in 17th century Europe are very different from our own. But how exactly did we get from that point to this point? Where was the kind of, you know, the moment when actually we got a little bit more squeamish about death? We decided that we didn't want to talk about it as much. We didn't need to talk about it as much, I guess. When and how did that happen? And how can we, I guess, sort of chart that that progression? So there's a lot of sort of shifts over different periods in the way that death is looked at and seen. But there's also a lot of continuities. So I would say the Victorian era is the kind of last era that, that shows this continuity with this real focus of death. Again, for the Victorians, death is ever present. There's a very high level of child mortality rate, densely pop- populated cities. So you get, again, death is a kind of common everyday experience for families and people. The view there is more sentimental, so often death is presented sort of more beautifully, but there still is this kind of cultural obsession and and also a real interest in mourning. So, you know, you have specific clothes for warning, mourning. Widows wear black for two years and then they wear grey or lavender for, you know, after that and when they go into half mourning. You can get mourning teapots and paper. And you can get things like uh, mourning hair jewellery. So the hair of the person who's died being put in a brooch or a ring. And this goes right back. We have this with mourning rings in the early modern period as well. So this is sort of a continuation of a tradition. And you also have things like portraits of the dead being sort of turned into photographs in the Victorian period. So, you know, people taking photos of the person who's died after their death, or even having a kind of family photo done with the dead person. There's a whole industry around this. There's a lot of money making that's happening around this. So there's there's sort of scams. Um, But I think that the change comes really with the Edwardian period. So you start getting better sort of science, better sanitation. Slowly over time, you get a sort of fall in the death rates, a fall in children's mortality. So death becomes a bit less frequent. It's a bit more remote. Illness doesn't necessarily mean death. So we start to see this change where you know, illness is something you you fight, you battle. Um, death, instead of just being a natural, inevitable occurrence, is something you war against. And actually, death is a bit of a failure. You know, you lose the battle to an illness. Um, you succumb to an illness. And, and probably really crucially as well, people start dying in hospitals kind of over time. So, so more and more, death is being removed from your everyday lived experience. And with that comes a slight sense that it's it's sort of impolite to talk about it. So we start getting, oh, they're going to die, but maybe don't mention it to them, those kinds of things. And then into this context, I think, eventually comes World War I, where we've lost a lot of the mourning rites, we've lost a lot of the rituals, and, and in the face of this kind of mass death, the anonymity of these huge losses, you know, often people mourning without a body, these mourning rituals just don't make make any sense anymore. 
Mm. So you get that, you know, again, death is something you don't talk about, but you've kind of lost a lot of the, the more communal ways of coming together, of mourning and of supporting each other. And I guess that then leaves us sort of both, yeah, embarrassed, but also kind of unprepared as to how to, how to, how to have conversations about and deal with, with death in our modern context. I find it really interesting that you were saying that obviously with the Edwardian period and the advancement, it makes sense, obviously, that as uh, deaths decline because of advances in medical, you know, healthcare and science that, you know, it becomes less of a, you know, it's, it's less present in people's minds. But it's interesting that you say it becomes a battle because I was thinking, of course, of the kind of Lutheran theology of the war on death as well. But the war on death there where it's not one that you can win in this life, the war on death is won. But, you know, the, all the, uh, the kind of iconography and the, the writing about it is that the war on death is won by Jesus Christ. You know, his crucifixion and resurrection is what has won the war on death. You know, um, that didn't taught, you know, at death is the, the enemy. But then actually through re- re- the re- resurrection, uh, that's that's what wins the battle. But I guess then when we start winning the battle through advances in healthcare, we worry a bit less perhaps about um, the sort of theological implications and about the religious aspects of it. Yeah, well, and, and we're, you know, we're, we're going into a much more secular society. I mean, again, the idea of the good death, you know, earlier is about a Christian death and about the afterlife. But actually, as you move forward into this more modern world, the good death is about the, the death that doesn't have pain in it. You know, so it becomes about the physical experience of death rather than the way in which it can usher you into, you know, the afterlife or show your your sort of Christian self. I mean, the one thing I would say from a grief point of view is that there is a tendency or has been a tendency to look back on these earlier forms of mourning and to see them as sort of weird, morbid and ghoulish. But the thing I would say from, you know, because I also do work on grief. I, you know, I work with the grief festival. I'm so sorry and... if I didn't mention that. And I No, should've... that's all right. But like from a kind of grief, a griever's point of view, I feel that the old ways of mourning have real connections to what psych- psychotherapists now say you're supposed to do when someone dies. So, you know, the, the, the stuff about the, the hair bracelets or the mourning rings that you were given, you know, we need physical touchstones to help us to mourn someone and to integrate that loss into our life. And, you know, even the photographs, if you think that, you know, you lose a child, that might be the only photograph you have of that child after they've died. And we know from parents who have stillborn babies that having a photograph of that baby is so important. It's not about getting over mourning. It's about continuing that relationship with that person who's died and carrying them into our life. And I actually think going all the way back, you know, to Schutz, that this sense in which the person dying, you know, organizes the funeral, it's a way for them to prepare for death but it's also an amazing gift for the people who survive because it's giving them this sort of continuity of their presence as they leave and even giving them, you know, we know that people often gave mourning rings to family and friends and it's even giving them a gift of like, here is something to remember you by. And these days people put ashes into their tattoos 
So, you know, again, if we think that, you know, the Victorians are morbid, I feel like we're going back to a world where we understand these historical practices through much more, I don't know, open and emotionally intelligent eyes. That is absolutely fascinating. And I, I think there's no question, of course, that the, you know, the musicality is an incredible gift. Um, I'm sure it was to, to those at the time, but, you know, as the way it's endured through history and has, you know, has such incredible relevance to us now and that the richness, I think that's one of the things I find about it and, you know, other works like it is that when you come back to them, you're always finding new contexts and new things and drawing things out of the music and the juxtaposition of, of music and text. But uh, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Liesl. That's an incredible discussion and so wide ranging. I'm so sorry I forgot to mention that you are, of course, one of the organisers of Good Grief, a festival of love and loss, which has just taken place, in fact, last week. It has. I have the arts and culture lead, in fact. Fantastic. Um, and I believe there's going to be another edition of it. And there will be. It's, um, we're hoping it's going to be an annual occurrence. And it really is a wonderful festival that brings together you know, um, things about art, as well as, you know, we get Julia Samuel, we get wonderful psychotherapists talking and sharing their experiences. So yes, and I think I'd like to think of these historical actions and behaviours in a much more generous, grief-oriented context. So that's the end of another edition of the Marin Consult podcast. As always, thanks for listening. You can hear our performance of Schutz's Musicalisches Exequien, interspersed with readings from the Orbis Sensualium Pictus, by visiting our website, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. As always, feel free to follow us on social media, on our Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where our handle is at Marin Consort. Thanks again for listening. Oh,